Hi, folks. This is Andrew Stelzer. If you get our program through iTunes, please go there and rate us so that other people can find the show. And if you're on our website, radioproject.org, please click on the donate button so that you can support this work and help us keep making great shows like this one. All right. Thanks. Here's the show. You're listening to a special edition of Making Contact. I'm Jasmine Lopez. In 1973, the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade established the legal right to abortion in the United States. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. In two related cases and eight separate opinions, the nine justices made abortion largely a private matter and ordered the states to make no laws forbidding it, except possibly during the final months. The court split seven to two with Justices Byron White and William Rehnquist dissenting. In effect, the court makes abortion subject only to the decision of the pregnant woman's doctor. It ruled that states may make no laws restricting a doctor's right to decide his patient needs an abortion and to carry out that abortion during the first three months of a pregnancy. After that comparatively safe three-month period, abortions may be regulated but not prohibited by state law and for the benefit of the mother's health alone. The newly liberalized abortion law brought immediate reaction. I think that uh, to uh, raise the dignity of woman and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event. And I think that January 22, 1973 would be an historic day. Since then, state legislative and executive bodies have battled to restrict access to abortions. Federal law banned the use of federal funds for most abortions in 1977. At the state level, public funding for abortion also remains a contested issue. But that has come at a cost to women. One recent study in Texas found that more than 200,000 women performed abortions on themselves because they weren't able to find clinical services. On today's show, we're in New Orleans with Jesse Niablas, founding board member of the New Orleans Abortion Fund. The New Orleans Abortion Fund provides financial help to women who can't afford the full cost of an abortion. Welcome to Making Contact, Jesse. Thank you very much for having me. We're also on the phone with Liza Fuentes in California. Liza is the Senior Project Manager at IBIS Reproductive Health. Through research, IBIS focuses on increasing access to safe abortion, expanding contraceptive access and choices, and integrating HIV and comprehensive sexual and reproductive health services. Welcome, Liza. Thank you. We're here to discuss abortion access and what it means for women in the U.S., but specifically in Texas and Louisiana, where both of you have worked. After Texas passed HB2 in 2013, more than half of the state's 41 abortion clinics have been forced to close. HB2 is the abortion law at the heart of Whole Women's Health versus Cole, the pivotal case said to represent the biggest threat to women's reproductive freedom since Roe versus Wade, and that the Supreme Court will review in early 2016. Now that the number of abortion clinics have been cut in half in Texas, advocates worry that the decline in access could lead to a rise in the number of women trying to terminate pregnancies by themselves. Liza, let's start with you. How have you seen these types of laws, HB2 specifically, impact the health and lives of women? Uh, Well, like you said, after HB2 uh, was introduced, more than half of the clinics in the state closed. 
Today, there's only 19 clinics uh, open providing abortion services in the state of Texas for more than 5.5 million women of reproductive age. We've been monitoring the effects of this law over the past two years, uh, and what we've found is that because so many clinics have closed, other clinics have had to work really hard to be able to provide services to all the women that need them, and wait times at some clinics have come up to more than a week, and in some cities, wait times for an abortion appointment is more than three weeks, for example. In areas where abortion clinics have closed um, and others do not remain open, women are seeing increased travel times and distances to the nearest clinic. And if they are already struggling to make ends meet, trying to make plans and arrangements to travel further, sometimes even have to spend um, the night if they have a two-day appointment, um, means that they have to spend more money, um, take more time off of work, find child care. And for some women, this may mean uh, continuing an unwanted pregnancy um, to term because she doesn't have the resources to actually get an appointment. Jesse, what do you think about this? Well, we are really watching um, what's going on with the Texas case very carefully. Uh, in the state of Louisiana, we the legislature passed an admitting privileges bill, and the Department of Health and Hospitals implemented very onerous clinic regu- regulations that really do nothing to guarantee women's safety because abortion is already such a safe procedure. However, we're lucky enough that those bills have not yet been um, implemented. And so in the state of Louisiana, we have not seen clinic closures. So I do want to be very clear that Louisiana still has five clinics. Um, They're located in three metropolitan areas. So even though we definitely cannot meet the demand we do still have clinics um, operating in the state. We're lucky that way. Um, but we are seeing women, as Liza mentioned, having to travel so far, having to wait longer to get an appointment at clinics, and really having to make sacrifices that further endanger their well-being in order to get the abortion care that they need. So even though they're still legally able to access abortion in the state of Louisiana, the regulations and the onerous and just completely unnecessary restrictions have really impacted their ability to um, live their lives how they need to. Jesse, can you tell us a little bit more about the New Orleans Abortion Fund, how it started and how it assists women? Absolutely. So we were fund, um, we were founded in uh, September of 2012. And um we grew from just you know a small two-person organization of um, myself and my co-founder Amy Irvin to um, this large network throughout the state. Um, we make pledges to women who need to seek abortion services at our two partner clinics, um, and we communicate with them to do some financial counseling, see what resources they already have available. The women who we work with are incredibly resourceful and incredibly smart. They just need assistance. Um, and then we make those pledges so that they're able to get the abortion care that they need. In addition to this direct service work, we also do advocacy work in coalition with uh, organizations of reproductive health rights and justice organizations um, through the Legislative Agenda for Women and also the Louisiana Coalition for Reproductive Freedom. So we fight to advance laws that help with uh, the well-being of women and families in our communities and also fight back against um, restrictions that really do damage to our communities. Um, 
since we started funding, we've helped over um, 450 clients. So we're really proud of um, that, and we hope to continue that work. That's great. Liza, can you tell us more about the Texas Policy Evaluation Project and why it was started and what you found? Sure. Um, The Texas Policy Evaluation Project started around 2011. Um, Our principal investigators, Daniel Grossman from UCSF and was a former vice president of IBIS, and Joseph Potter at the University of Texas at Austin, saw that the Texas state legislature at that time was proposing to cut family planning funds for the state by two-thirds and were um, looking at imposing a waiting period for abortion care. And they felt that a rigorous public health evaluation was needed to really understand the effects of these laws. And so they started TexPEP um, to really look at the effect of those of those programs. Uh, and, you know, what they found was that... Um, a great proportion of the family planning clinics in Texas closed as a result of the funding cuts. Um, and when we evaluated the abortion laws, you know, we saw that indeed women did have to travel further because they made they had to make two visits to to the clinic. Um, but we also found that um, some of the other pieces of the law, particularly um, ultrasound laws, um, you know, that which were meant to dissuade women from having an abortion actually didn't. Most of the women that we spoke to had mixed feelings uh, about seeing an ultrasound. Um, in any case, when the 2013 legislature in Texas um, imposed HB2, um, introduced the bill, we continued and extended our research to include the evaluation of that policy. Thank you. Um, according to the Institute for Women's Policy Research, the Midwest and the South fare the worst when it comes to the reproductive rights of women and Louisiana being among the 10 lowest ranking. Jesse, what are the restrictive laws when it comes to abortion access in Louisiana and New Orleans? What's happening there, and is there a difference between the two? Well, in the state of Louisiana, there's quite a few restrictions on um, the right to an abortion and also um, what clinics need to do in order to um, satisfy the state requirements. Um, There is a 24-hour waiting or delay period between the first state-mandated ultrasound, um, which also includes some biased counseling um, that the providers are forced to uh, provide, and the actual abortion procedure. So as Liza mentioned, often this means that an abortion can be Um, a multi-day procedure. Um, In addition, there is a restriction on abortions past 20 weeks gestation, which we know really does disproportionately impact women who have some sort of fetal abnormality that isn't detected before 20 weeks, um, and that can have devastating consequences for families. And it also um, might impact younger um, uh, women who are not quite so aware of their bodies and when they might be pregnant. Speaking of younger women, we also have parental consent laws, or you have to go through a fairly onerous judicial bypass procedure. So you think about that. You think about a 15-year-old girl who doesn't um, feel that she can safely tell her parents that she's pregnant, um, and then she has to go before a judge. Um, And so what that means for, um, for those girls. In addition, there's no um, Medicaid or private insurance coverage in the state of Louisiana for abortion procedures. So all of the costs must come from out of pocket. And there's only five clinics in three metropolitan areas. So there's tremendous travel um, restrictions. And you mentioned New Orleans. And 
I would say that, you know, there's two clinics in the New Orleans metropolitan area, and they really do attract national protesters because of the high profile of the city of New Orleans and how we do tend to um, attract folks. And uh, there was a very large protest uh, in the summer of 2014 from Operation Save America, in which the New Orleans Abortion Fund um, provided escorts because some people who are linked to that organization are also linked to domestic terrorism activities. You're listening to a special edition of Making Contact. We've been talking with Jesse Niablas from the New Orleans Abortion Fund and Liza Fuentes from Ibis Reproductive Health, who recently conducted the Texas Policy Evaluation Project. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. Go to radioproject.org, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Welcome back to the special edition of Making Contact. We've been talking with Jesse Niablas from the New Orleans Abortion Fund and Liza Fuentes from Ibis Reproductive Health and the Texas Policy Evaluation Project. Earlier in the show, we mentioned the case Whole Woman's Health versus Cole, which is set to be reviewed by the Supreme Court in 2016. How do each of you see this decision impacting the state of reproductive health and abortion access for women? Jesse? Well, as I mentioned, we do um, we are watching this case carefully because we've seen similar restrictions come through Louisiana, and so the decisions of the Supreme Court will really have national implications for uh, the ability of clinics to stay open. Um, and they, of course, have an impact of the women in our neighboring Texas who may have to come to Louisiana and, and who may face greater difficulty in accessing abortion care. Liza, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's just. The um, the fact that the Supreme Court took this case is, we hope, really good news for abortion providers and women who need abortions, uh, because admitting privileges laws and ambulatory surgical center laws um, are popping up in states across the United States, um, including Louisiana, as we've heard. Should this law go into effect, HB2 in Texas, Texas will be left with just 10 clinics in the entire state to serve almost 6 million women between the ages of 15 and 44. It's possible that the entire south of Texas and west Texas may be left with no abortion clinic at all. Um, We've already seen, you know, as I said before, wait times for an abortion appointment go over a week, in some cases up to three weeks, um, and we can expect that this probably will just worsen if the law goes into effect. There's no evidence that admitting privileges laws or ambulatory surgical laws um, make abortion any safer for women. It's already extremely safe. Um, And yet, if the Texas law goes into effect after the Supreme Court decision, the door could be left open for other states to use these laws to restrict abortion services even further, with no evidence that it will, um, you know, protect women's health in any way at all. So... um, the Supreme Court decision is incredibly important for what we see as um, really a, a very important public health issue and important to women's rights and well-being. What are your final thoughts, Jesse? 
I would really like to say that it's so important for us to do what we can in our own lives to help to combat abortion stigma. And the stigma really is what is often what often makes these laws able to go into effect. We know that one in three American women gets an abortion in her lifetime. And so even just talking about it and having conversations can really make a difference in your family, in your community. And you can really um, provide an outlet for somebody who might be wanting to discuss their abortion decision. The vast majority of our clients are religious. They are mothers. They're working hard, but they just aren't able to fully fund their procedure because of personal things and also societal issues. So we can really make a difference in our own lives and in our own families simply by talking about the need for abortion access. Liza, final thoughts? Sure. Um, Well, the Texas Policy Evaluation Project will continue to conduct research to really understand the multiple outcomes and consequences of laws like HB2. And, you know, while we've seen that uh, things like medication abortion have been put out of reach, women are driving further and spending more money to obtain abortions, uh, we've also conducted, um, you know, emerging research to show that while women are resourceful um, and have to make great sacrifices to obtain the care that they need, um, it's still the case that for some women, abortion care will be out of reach for them. And we've interviewed women, for example, who had to carry a pregnancy even though they wanted an abortion because they did not have the time or the resources. And actually, it's not even really about time, right? I mean, we interviewed one woman who was from West Texas. West Texas used to have an abortion clinic. Um, After HB2 was introduced, that uh, clinic closed. And she called several cities, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, um, and she wanted a medication abortion, and she simply could not, with her partner, come up with the money to drive that far. Um, You know, um, while for many people um, the cost of an abortion, maybe $400, $500, may not seem like a lot, when you're already struggling to make ends meet, when you live 200 miles plus from a clinic, um, this is a really um, almost impossible obstacle to overcome. This is what our research is showing. Um, So... You know, the Supreme Court case on HB2 is really, really critical to establishing, reestablishing the constitutional right of women to be able to make the best decisions for their health. Jesse, Liza, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Liza Fuentes is Senior Project Manager at IBIS Reproductive Health. Liza is also current chair of the Board of Directors of Reproductive Health Technologies Project a board member of Forward Together, and is a former member of the board of the National Network of Abortion Funds, New York Abortion Access Fund, and the DC Abortion Fund. Jesse Niablos is a founding board member of the New Orleans Abortion Fund. Jesse has worked on sexual violence prevention and intervention, reproductive health and rights, and health care access. Restrictive laws aren't the only things blocking abortion access and eroding the reproductive rights of women. While it's estimated that one in three women will get abortions in their lifetime, it's not talked about. Not talking about abortion and the need for abortion access perpetuates the stigma and leaves many women facing a lack of information, resources, and fear. Natalie, a teacher in New Orleans, recently found herself in a similar situation. She shares more about her experience shortly after accessing services at the New Orleans Abortion Fund, also known as NOAF. 
my name is Nathalie, so I live in uh, New Orleans for uh, four years now, and I used to live before in Salt Lake City for five years. I'm, I'm 44. I didn't want to have a baby in my life. I didn't have an abortion before. It was the first time. So I have no idea how it works. At that time, uh, I didn't tell anybody. So I, I just used internet. That was the only access for me to, to know where to go, what to do. So I went on the internet and um, I actually read the reviews. And uh, all of them, they were criticize and make me scared so I actually call a friend because she told me uh, oh I heard that it's not good things to do that in Louisiana that's not that not the, the state to do that when she told me that I, w- I was like okay now I'm gonna have to look even further go somewhere else yeah I felt terribly lost I didn't know what to do and Everything was for me uh, so new, even the feeling, the way I, I was feeling. I never get pregnant as well. And I, I was very emotional. And before, actually, before I talked to anybody, first thing in the morning on Monday uh, after work, I went to the Planned Parenthood. So I went there and then um, they said, there is nothing we can do except give you a, a test, a pregnancy test. But I, I did already. So, and they'd give me the, the paper and give me the. the the address of actually those three places in Louisiana where I can do that. And my, my doctor, gynecologist, told me very straight, I would not get any help there. Abortion, no, they, they say, no, there is nothing we can do here. And also um, the other things, the insurance. Uh, so I, I'm lucky to have an insurance with uh, the school where I work. But of course, I check before, and of of course, abortion. They say it's one of the uh, restric- restriction. So of course, they don't do they don't uh, help at all. Why they do that? Because if the if the if the if the mother has a baby, if she doesn't want the baby, but she will have to to get birth. This is a lot of money. First of all, I could not believe it. I was like. How is possible? 2015, I can't get help. I cannot do that here in New Orleans, in United States. I really could not believe it. Just after that, I make contact with NOAF. So they make me believe that I can find uh, help here in New Orleans. I don't have to go far away. And I'm glad I did I did uh, that choice. I, uh, I cried on the phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was... Uh... Yeah, I think they do a very good, huh? good thing. Because, of course, uh, it costs a lot of money to do that. And I don't know, I didn't know the person. We, I just talk on the phone. And to to feel like somebody can help, even financially. And then uh, the person also that night uh, helped me, um, um, give me so much information. I thought it was very. I told her it's wonderful. I know. I still don't understand uh, how how we can how we can be like that. How they 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 want to close those clinics. Where where the 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 girl woman will go? Where are they gonna go? So they don't they don't want to let uh, the woman have uh, having choice. But if they can't raise their kid properly or the way they want it because of that, what is the future? How it's gonna be? It's how how United States gonna be? How New Orleans gonna be in the future? On November 27, 2015, 
A shooting spree and five-hour-long standoff took place at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Three people lost their lives, and several others were injured. The fear of attacks like these are one reason that Dr. Susan Wickland, an abortion provider in Montana, shares her experiences and speaks out against the anti-abortion harassers. The following is a reading from the play Words of Choice, an entry from Dr. Susan Wickland's diary about her intense fear when abortion protesters threatened her and terrorized her family. Journal entry, August 1990. Scared, so scared. Hard to think, heart pounding. Try to avoid the protesters in front of the clinic. I hid in the backseat of a taxi. Went to the back door of the clinic, two men there. One man grabbed me and slammed me up against a park van, his face in my face, screaming at me, you kill her, you kill her, you deserve to die. Stop killing babies, Susan. I struggle, got away from the van by just inches and they threw me up against it. Screaming, I hit send on the phone, I hoped someone would hear. I felt my hip slam into the side of the van again, heard another voice, the back door was open. Attackers briefly let go and I ran for it. I feel like I'm still sitting in a frantic dream. I need to gather myself enough to see patients. I need to cry. January 27th, 1991. On the weeks that I drive to the Fargo Clinic, 240 miles from my home, I always stop at the edge of town and call for a protester of the day report. One morning, the activity is particularly bad, so I put on a wig, a heavy coat of makeup, long black jumper, tennis shoes, and sunglasses. I park my car blocks away, and I walk toward the clinic. I can see a crowd gathered there, 100 of them, all people whose only objective it is to keep me from my work. They are after control. Control of me, control of the women coming to the clinic, control of anyone who believes differently than they do. At the edge of the crowd, I begin mingling. I hear myself shouting their awful words just to play the part. And finally, I'm at the front lines. I take off my sunglasses as I move closer to the guard, silently signaling with my eyes, it's me, it's me. And his eyes find mine, color drains from his face. I nod. He moves slightly to the side, opening up a path, and I dart through. I never look back. On my return flight to Minneapolis, I'm anxious to see my daughter, Sonia, and Randy, my husband. And the elevator opens on the fifth floor of the airport parking garage, and it strikes me how devoid of people it is at 10 p.m. I walk toward my car, and I see movement inside a van about 50 feet away. Three people emerge, two men and a woman, protesters. My first instinct is to turn and flee. They come at me, I feel like prey. They begin with their stream of words. Susan, you have to stop killing babies. You have to stop killing babies. How dare they speak my name as if they know me. My body feels hot. I mean, they've come 300 miles to meet me in a dark parking lot. I look into their faces now two feet away. How dare you, I scream. How dare you? How dare you? You go to my home. You terrorize my daughter. How dare you? Words are my only weapon, my only power. They stop, and I can see shame register. And suddenly I'm at my car. I throw my pack inside. I drive out into the dark, big night, and I pull over to the side of the road. I want to vomit. The siege continues for weeks. 
Randy, Sonia, and I are at the house in Wisconsin. I'm due in Fargo again the next morning for clinic at 9 a.m. A great many protesters begin collecting outside. A motorhome pulls up at the end of the drive, and then groups of men move in huge cement barrels to block our way out. I call the police. They say it's too dangerous for the officers to come in the dark. If the problem is still there in the morning, backup help from other counties will be called. I begin pacing. I have 15 patients scheduled, and I am determined to get there. I make a phone call to a woman in town who'd offered help. Randy gets my gun. I go out the back door, downhill on a narrow, brushy trail to the edge of a swamp, then along the river to an old trail. Step by step, I make my way. Please, please, just let me make it to that dirt road. I reach the prearranged spot just as a small red car pulls in. Sue, yes, I'm here. She delivers me to the stables where we have a few horses and keep an old pickup. I drive all night and reach the clinic before dawn, park in the back. Out front, the protesters are already gathering, jubilant. They're obviously in contact with the group back at my home. The protesters jeer at the guards. No clinic today, they jeer. Your doctor won't make it in today. Dr. Susan won't make it in today. Doc I cannot stand hearing them one more minute. I walk to the front door and I open it, and for the first time, for the first time, I walk out onto the porch in my scrubs. I'm here, I say. I am here, and there will be clinic today. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to the Mary Wolford Foundation for partial funding of this program. To learn more about the people and organizations on today's show, go to radioproject.org. Like Making Contact on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Quan Booth, Laura Flynn, and Andrew Stelzer. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.